welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. As we return to the verse-by-verse exposition of the Gospel of Luke after two years away from it, we come now and we open chapter 20, verses 1 to 8. And so let us hear the Word of God together. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the Gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up. And said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man... All the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is God's holy and majestic word. May we see him in his greatness through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I I know that you have been made aware of the latest national response of rage in our country, and uh, it has to do with the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade, the, the decision by the Supreme Court in 1973, which opened up the legalization of abortion across America. You're no stranger to what's happened, the revelation, the leak from the Supreme Court, the reaction across the country, which reached a new level yesterday. And in fact, I've I've followed this and been involved in this battle for 30 years, personally as a Christian. And uh, I've never seen such amazing statements as have been made in the last two weeks. Let me just read to you uh, Fox News' coverage of what happened yesterday in the nation's capital. And by the way, it happened in downtown Spokane as well at Riverfront Park. But in Washington, D.C., thousands, this news coverage says, thousands of pro-choice activists from different corners in America descended on Washington, D.C. on Saturday for the Bands Off Our Bodies event organized by a coalition of groups including Planned Parenthood and the Women's March. Welcoming activists to the nation's capital, Rachel Carmona, executive director for the Women's March, warned this will be a, quote, summer of rage, unquote, as she spoke at the event held on the National Mall. She said, quote, we will be ungovernable until this government starts working for us. Ungovernable, she said, and she led those in attendance in a chant across the grass of the mall, ungovernable, ungovernable, ungovernable. So it was a remarkable statement of defiance 
against the potential ruling of law in this country and society. Remarkable. I haven't seen things like this in recent time. And you may be troubled over this and really believe that the nation is in a great battle over abortion, but I would correct you and say that it, it has been in battle over many issues like this for many, many years. And I would say that this is not really a battle over abortion. It is a battle over authority, not governmental authority alone, where people are chanting ungovernable, basically stating we will not respond to the law. But it's, it's a battle in, in the heart of, of human beings over moral authority. This is all a question that revolves around who gets to decide what is done with a human life. Who gets to decide when human life becomes valuable. When human life and identity gets to be judged as having begun. And whether a person has a right over those dimensions of physical life. It's, it's a battle over moral authority. And the big question is, who has moral authority? God or human beings? And that's what you're seeing acted out here. There's a great strain on our society over those that are secularists and believe that this life is the only life and that man is his own uh, value giver and his own uh, moral arbiter and those who have a sense and or a belief that there is a higher power and that our rights come not from the decision of the populace, but from the will of a creator God. That's the major story behind this. And it's, like I said, been a story that society has battled over in our country and many other places for, for many years. It's, it's in actuality, it's the battle of the ages. When you think about the spiritual history of man. This great battle over who decides moral truth, who decides the limitations of man, is the battle that began in the garden. It was the essence of the first temptation. When God had laid out his moral authority over Adam and Eve in a perfect world, and he revealed his perfect will to them, and Satan presents himself, and he creates the great battle with a question, and he looks at Eve and said, did God say that? In other words, is he the authority? Or are you a better authority? Did God say that? In other words, you can't trust him. You need to slip in with your own moral superiority and take a position over him. So it began the great moral struggle of humanity. It's where we tumbled into sin. It's where the battle began ages ago. And it's where the battle is going to end in ages to come at the end of human history when the judgment of God falls on the planet in the years of judgment to come that the Bible has predicted for centuries in all the prophets and in the book of Revelation continuously as judgment falls upon a rebellious world in massive ways. Revelation continues to remind us that even as the judge worsened, human beings curled their fingers into a fist before God and said, we will not repent. And in the final analysis, the, the masses of humanity will gather against the Lamb of God himself, returning as the Lion of Judah, and they will contest God visibly until the very end. And so this is the nature of supernatural battle. It's the spiritual battle of human beings. Man demands now to be the moral authority. Man is basically 
standing before God and the essence of what he knows in his conscience is right and says, ungovernable. That's the, the emblem of our full spiritual battle. Now, every human faces that choice when God arrives in their lives through the revelation of the gospel through the word of God. All of us have come in, in our sin to be believed that we are our own kings and that we are ungovernable by anyone else. Yet the gospel comes and, and reveals our sin and reveals our pride, reveals our rebellion, reveals the damage it's leading us into, the eternal payment we will, we will be responsible for it if we don't repent. And we all face the decision. That's what Christian conversion is. It is, will I continue to govern my life and deny my moral responsibility, or will I bow the knee to a Savior King? That's conversion. Every truly converted individual comes to make that choice. Now, the choice of decision to submit to God leads to freedom. The choice to resist His call leads to destruction. That's what the Bible teaches. So the battle over moral authority that you may see being played out in in and news coverage is not over any one issue. It's over the great issue. Shall he be my authority or not? Now, I lay all that out in introduction because this is a passage about spiritual authority. It's a passage that talks about the authority to represent God and to obey God. And it, it, it's a battle over it. It's a contention passage. Jesus is ministering. Jesus is teaching. Jesus is standing in authority as the Messiah. And these religionists come and challenge him. And right here you see a battle of two authorities. So there's much to learn here. In fact, what we go through in this passage will reveal how you can properly handle the question of authority in your own life. If you're a believer, you can learn how to win the battle of authority as you submit to Christ's lordship more and more in your life from some of the principles in this passage that I'll explain. If you're not yet a believer, this is the ultimate question for you. Will you go on and sin or will you turn to a savior and admit that you being the authority of your life has not only broken your future, it's defied your God. So listen closely. Now what I'm going to do is Simply explain the passage. And again, the two points I often frame things with, the passage explained and then the passage applied. People say, gosh, pastor, your outlines are so similar so much of the time. It's pretty much the passage explained, the passage applied. Why don't you get more creative? Well, it's because I'm really not a sermon giver. Never have been. I'm not a sermon giver. I'm a Bible teacher. And the best, the best thing for me to do is not to create some dimensions of spiritual thought and link them to the text and, and craft a wonderful flowing sermon with creative points and movement. No, I just want to get into this text as far as I can in the limited time I have, share with you what I believe it teaches and open the elements of it to you and then apply it to my life first, your life second. And so, yeah, you'll see the approach continue. I, that's just, that's what I do. It's what I can do. In fact, and you'll find out today, I think it's what more faithful preachers should do. But we're going to look at this. We're going to explain the passage, first of all. Now, I said this is a clash of authority. It's a clash between Jesus, the true authority as almighty God in human flesh. 
who all the way through his ministry had demonstrated his authority. Remember, we've gone through the Gospel of Luke. It's a grand story in which Jesus is brought into the scene in the earlier chapters by the ministry of John the Baptist and the fulfillment of all kinds of Old Testament prophecy that showed that he had the authority to come to earth as the only Savior, the one predicted by the Old Testament. So he's revealed as the predicted one. He he comes with that authority. Then in the, the middle chapters of Luke, there's miracle after miracle after miracle where he demonstrates his power and authority as Almighty God. He's got power over all the dimensions of the earth through physical healing and through the the, st- the stilling of the waves on Galilee. He's got power of all the hosts of hell over all the hosts of hell by casting out demons and facing down Satan himself in the wilderness. He has power over body and illness and soul as he forgives people's sins. He looks into their eyes and says, says your sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. And so Luke demonstrates through all the miracle stories that we've learned from him that Jesus Christ lived in authority. He had it. He exerted it. And then in the chapters that come up to chapter 19, there's all the teaching, all the parables, the depth of the truth giver, God Almighty bringing truth from the throne room of heaven. Jesus lived in authority so much so that at the end in Matthew 28, 18, he said, all authority has been given to me. When was it given? When he rose? No, it had always been his. The Father gave it to him, and he came to earth with that authority. So uh, authority was what Jesus lived in and lit with. It's been noted that Jesus never asked permission to do anything. You read through your Gospels sometime, and you'll see that to be true. He walked in authority. And his authority drove religious leaders nuts. All the way through the Gospel of Luke, we've seen growing conflict when Jesus taught, when Jesus worked miracles, when Jesus preached about his crosswork, when Jesus stood against the leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, a growing rage. And that rage has risen over the three years, and it came to its peak right in this chapter. Because chapter 20 through the end of Luke now captures the final seven days of the earthly life of Christ, followed by the resurrection and the ascension. But the body of what we're going to finish studying in Luke is is the seven final days in which the great battle over Christ's authority peaked, came to a head. So we've seen how the gospel has led up to this. Let me remind you that as, as Luke put, put his gospel into a process and a flow of the life of Christ, not only is he filled it with teachings, but in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, a very important point in the gospel, the scripture says that from that point onward, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so the last uh, 10 to 15 chapters of Luke are all about the last months in which Jesus is making his final journey to Jerusalem. And in chapter 19, he arrives at the city. And when you take a look at your Bibles, you'll see that the final element before he entered Jerusalem was what's called the triumphal entry. We celebrate it on a Palm Sunday. It's when Christ entered Jerusalem, seated on, on the foal of a donkey as in fulfillment of prophecy, and all the people welcomed him. And he comes in triumph into the city. You can see this described in your Bibles in Luke chapter 19. If you go a little back earlier, the the great triumphal procession, he moves into the city. When he comes into the city after this great triumphal procession, which angered the leaders no end, verse 45 says he entered the temple the next day, actually, 
and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus Christ confronted the Pharisees and all the religious leaders who had turned the worship of God through the sacrificial offerings into a religious business that were ripping people off in the name of ceremony. And that whole outer temple area, which was about 10 football fields big, was filled with all kinds of vendors selling the animals that were needed for the sacrifices to the people who needed to make the sacrifices at rip-off prices. They had turned it into this religious system to make money. Jesus came in and for the second time in his ministry scattered all those people out and drove them out of that area. That enraged the leaders even more. Jesus came back the next day in verse 47 and he began to teach. And in fact, through the beginning of that final week known as Passion Week, each day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and part of the day Thursday, Jesus was teaching daily, look at verse 47 of 19, in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people saw this and were seeking to destroy him. They'd reached the apex of their anger and hatred and had put a plan in place to destroy him, to murder him, to take his life, to take him out. And his teaching enraged them further. But look at verse 48. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Remarkable time. This is where Luke now builds this narrative. Our text says, one day, one of those early days in the final week of Passion Week, Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. In the temple, walking in the outer area where hundreds, if not thousands, could gather and get close enough to hear him. Or maybe walking in, the, in what was called Solomon's Portico, which was, was a part of the, uh, the, the temple that had pillars in a covered area. However he did it, he was teaching. The rabbis traditionally would walk and talk. How about that for a preaching style? I don't have much room to do that up here, but they would walk and teach and interact with their listeners, and then a question would be asked, and they would stop. They'd answer the question, and then typically they'd follow that with a question to the questioner, and then the group would move along farther. It was a moving kind of classroom, and that's what Jesus was doing. What was he teaching them? Well, it says in verse 20, chapter 20, verse 1, he was preaching the gospel. So at times he stopped, and he stopped lecturing and interacting, and he just went to preaching. And what was he preaching? He was preaching the gospel. Now, what's the gospel? Well, he, he wove it through all of his earthly teaching ministry, particularly toward the end coming to Jerusalem, when he talked more about sin and about the hypocritical religious answer to it that, that Judaism offered that was dead. It couldn't deal with sin. It couldn't cure it. But Jesus also talked more than any earthly prophet ever did about hell and about the fact that all of his listeners faced hell and they couldn't earn their way out of hell through the Jewish law or through any way that they lived their lives. They needed to come and be broken in spirit as Jesus taught in the great Sermon on the Mount and to come and understand their need for a Savior, to come with a contrite heart, and they needed to come to him as the Lamb of God, as John introduced him and as Jesus described himself, the one who had come to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus would preach there in the portico about sin, about lostness, about the inability of man to save himself, about the fact that he was going to go to a cross and pay for their sin. 
All of that was included because that was the nature of the final preaching ministry of Jesus. They could enter into eternal life by trusting in his death and resurrection. So he was preaching that, wanting them to all have a chance to hear it because he knew he was five days away or less from achieving it. So that's what was going on in this passage. And look at how the people responded. Verse 48, all the people were hanging on his words. Wow, church was going on in the temple, (laughs) except for a small group of people, the elders, the scribes, and the Pharisees. They weren't hanging on his words. They wanted to hang the man preaching the words. And they were filled with rage. And they had gotten to a point where they weren't going to handle it anymore. They weren't going to take it anymore. And so a large group of them come now in verse 1, and it says, the, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, who were they? The chief priests were the, the, the ordained leaders of the Jewish priesthood. They were the, the ultimate rulers of the Jewish state. The scribes were their religious scholars who followed them everywhere they were and gave them cross-references from, from the Jewish law that they continued to write at, to prove their religious points of view. And the elders uh, were the other leaders who backed up their decisions. They were part of a group known as the Sanhedrin. It was 70 different elders that ultimately condemned Jesus. So this was a large group of people, and it looks like dozens of them came and muscled their way through the crowd of thousands as Jesus was preaching the gospel, and they stopped him. And it says they came up. That's a weak translation. The Greek word is a fistimi. It it meant to stand over or to get right in somebody's face. So they interrupted church. They interrupted the preaching. They pushed their way through the crowd and gathered there in their authority and all their finery. They stopped Jesus, interrupted him. And he said, and they said, tell us by what authority you do these things. So the confrontation is now building. The whole conversation in verses uh, 2 through 8 is short and sharp, but it gives, there are four revealing parts to it. The first part was a challenge. That's pretty obvious. They come up and they challenge him. That's verses 1 and 2. Tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. What were they talking about? Well, they were big on authority. They were the authorities. They had redesigned the Jewish religion to where they had added all their own laws onto it, and they had the people completely herded into this submissive place where the scribes and the Pharisees told them every right or wrong about religious life. And they all taught by quoting each other. Rabbis always quoted another rabbi and said, if you don't believe me, rabbi so-and-so says it too. And so the people lived under their teaching authority and under all the rules about how they were to be religiously pure enough to enter the temple. They were all about authority. You couldn't enter the temple if you hadn't followed their rules correctly, if you hadn't cleansed yourself correctly. You could not teach in the temple unless you'd been ordained or approved by the Sanhedrin, by all these guys. So what was Jesus doing? (laughs) He was teaching and preaching in the temple. He'd been teaching and preaching for three years. Now he comes right into the temple and does this. And they say, by what authority are you doing these things? I mean, he'd done a a couple other things that drove him nuts. One was the triumphal entry, coming in as the Messiah, fulfilling prophecy. They, They were enraged over that. 
And then what had he done two days before? He cleansed the temple of all their their religious operation. When when they say, by what authority do do you do these things? Verse 2, those are the things they're talking about. Now they come in and they have a, a, a plan. And that is, they know that they haven't given Jesus authority. They know that the people all know that nobody gets to teach if they haven't gotten the stamp of approval from the Sanhedrin, from these guys. So they, they, they would say, let's go and get Jesus to admit that he has no authority from us to do this. And when the people hear that, we've got them trained so well. They'll say, well, gosh, he's stirring my heart and I'm hanging on his words, but he hasn't been approved. He hasn't, he's not ordained and the, the, the leadership rejects him. So we really need to reject his message. They were hoping to thin out the crowds and delegitimize Jesus. Well, that was their plan. His plan as almighty God was to expose them and delegitimize them. And so we now go to the second part. There's the the confrontation, if you will, or the challenge. Secondly, there is a response. It's very easy to read in verse 3. From Jesus, he answered them, I also will ask you a question. They had him in two ways. One is, rabbis taught that way. When you ask them a question, they had the ability to respond, not with a clear answer, but they would say, well, let me ask you a question related to that. And it was all a debate style. So he was simply being a rabbi. But he also, as Almighty God, knew their hearts, knew their corruption, knew where they were going, and he was going to ask them a question that would completely take them apart. I will ask you. He was going to push the issue into what it really is. They were trying to catch him on a technicality. He was going to hang them on reality. And he says, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? The baptism of John, we need to understand a little bit about that. Now, that baptism, we just talked about having baptisms in our church in a couple weeks. That's believer's baptism. That's not what's being talked about here. We baptize people today as they look back on the fact that at a point in their life, younger or older, they heard the gospel, they, they, they saw their sin, and they sought their Savior. They became believers. And that happens in a supernatural way in your heart. You're born again. And when you get baptized in, 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 in obedience to that, you're, you're, you're outwardly showing that you're committed to Jesus and you've repented of your sins and you want to walk with him. But our baptism looks back on something we decided to do. John's baptism was different, and most of you know this. John's baptism was a baptism that people underwent before Jesus arrived, before Messiah came, to show that they wanted to purify their hearts and their lives and be ready for him. Who was John the Baptist? He was predicted by the Old Testament, as the one who would be the forerunner to the Messiah when the Messiah came to the earth. He was a prophet. They grew up at the same time that Jesus did, a little older than Jesus by about six months. And he came out into the wilderness of the Jordan River and began preaching to the Jews, repent for the kingdom of God is coming, the Messiah is coming. If you want to be ready for him, come down into the water of the Jordan. And when you come down under the water, it shows that you know you're sinners. And you need to be cleansed 
by the Savior who's coming. And so thousands and thousands of thousands of people came from Jerusalem and Judea, and they came out to this wild-eyed prophet and got baptized in the Jordan. One day, someone stepped out from the crowd to be baptized, and it was Jesus. And John was shocked, and he says, you should be baptizing me, not I you. And Jesus said, do this to fulfill all righteousness. And, and Jesus was brought down into the water. And as he rose out of the water, a great voice came from heaven. God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the son of God. And John would point to him at a different point and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that was John's baptism. It was all about preparing people to receive Jesus, and it was all about identifying Jesus as the Son of God, as God Almighty, and as Messiah. That's everything he was about. So when Jesus says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? It's a huge question. So the, the question, in a, in a sense, would answer their question. By what authority do you do these things? Jesus was saying... If you believe what John the Baptist said through his baptism of repentance, and if you believe what he said when he baptized me and when he looked at me and said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and if you believe that voice that came from heaven when I came up out of the water that said, God says, this is God's beloved Son, you know what by what authority I do this. I'm God and I'm the Messiah. So he wasn't evading their answer. He was answering their question, but they could not dare accept that. They could not respond, you see. And that brings us to the third dimension. There was a challenge that they laid down foolishly, proudly, to catch him on a technicality. The response that Jesus gives hangs them on the reality that they will not dare admit because they didn't believe it and they wouldn't want to get the crowd's reaction. So now Jesus puts them on what we call the horns of a dilemma. That's the third part. You see it in verse 4. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another. All of a sudden, this huge power block of guys dressed so well, and their chests out and their chins set, and people kind of cowering away in the crowd from them. These are the guys. These are the ultimate authorities. These are the wisest of the wise. And they're standing there with their fingers pointed at Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, the fingers curl back, and the body posture starts to shrink, and they step back from Jesus, and they get into a little holy huddle, and they say, for crying out loud, what do we do now? By the way, this is wonderful proof of a very important lesson. And that is when you, want, when you go one-on-one -on -one with God, you lose. <laughs> Just thought I'd point this out. If you're trying to go one-on-one -on -one with God right now and you don't know Him yet and you're resisting His call, hey, you'll lose and if you're a believer and you've kind of slid back on your faith and you think you can go one, one, one with God and kind of renegotiate the terms of his will for your life, my friend, you can't win. Anyway. So they're, they're, they're caught in this dilemma, you see. His question was simple, but it was profound. Now, you see, they'd already gone on record earlier in the Gospel of Luke. We won't look there specifically, but in Luke chapter 7, in verse 29 and 30, 
When John the Baptist was baptizing early in his ministry, all the people and the tax gatherers, all the the rank sinners heard his message and they acknowledged God's justice, the Bible says, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Thousands and thousands of common people struck by their sin went out and got baptized and said, yes, whoever he's talking about is going to be the Messiah. I believe in him. I'm ready for him. But in verse 30, it says that the Pharisees and the scribes rejected God's purpose for themselves. This is Luke 7:30, not having been baptized by John. These guys came out to the river, saw John the Baptist, rejected it totally. So they were already on record. And politically, they, uh, they couldn't do it and they wouldn't do it. They're remembering that moment and they, they say in verse 5, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? In other words, then you must admit that I am Messiah and I have authority to walk into this temple anytime I want because I built it. It's to worship me. I am the coming king. Or, they said, but, verse 6, if we will say it's from man, it's, it was just a crazy guy out in the wilderness with a weird theological belief that doesn't have God behind it, then all the people will stone us to death. I love their fear, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. You know, they're you know, rocking a hard place, however you want to describe it. One commentator I read, put it this way. He said, if you enjoy playing chess, you know that there sometimes comes a point in a chess game where no matter what you do, you're going to lose a piece, right? That is what happened here, he writes. They pondered their possible range of answers and came to the conclusion that no matter what they said, it would be wrong. Notice that they are more interested in fighting Jesus and in holding on to their popularity than they are in learning the truth, how important that is. The one thing that they do not do in this conversation is ask, you know, I wonder if John and Jesus are right in what they're saying. They had a moment there where they had a a last chance point where they could repent and dump their pride and dump their own authority and submit to God's authority, but they don't do it. Why don't they see their need for the truth? It's because they've got a vested interest in continuing in their unbelief, and so they refuse to answer the question, end quote. So that's the domain of their dilemma, and they walk out of it with a non-answer in verse 8, or verse 7. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. You got to look at how ironic that is. These were the guys that had all the answers. They taught the people that for generations. And in fact, they took the Old Testament and didn't feel that there was enough authority in that and enough restrictions in that, so they invented hundreds and hundreds of their own laws that called the oral law that they all wrote and they memorized and they made the people obey those laws too. The the, the scribes and the Pharisees were gone to for every question, every decision, and they always had the latest answer. Well, here they are, and they have no answer because they had no willingness to submit to God's moral authority. So their dilemma really created a consequence. They were revealed before all the people. And they said, well, we just don't know where it came from. 
Now, Jesus answers them at this point with the final dimension, and that is the consequence of it. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, many commentators have looked at this point of the passage, and they, they believe that this was the ending of the end. These guys had been in contention with Jesus for three years. It had escalated in the, in the preceding months. It had climaxed when Jesus rode into Jerusalem two days before. It ultimately had its big showdown here, although there will be more things later in the week where Jesus would be dealing with them again. But most commentators look at this and say, this was the ending of the end in the sense that Jesus no longer revealed truth to them but he let them go on in their deception. It was the ending of the end. You notice farther on in the week, Passion Week, we'll see it in part here, but the other Gospels show that when Jesus taught, he taught, he taught in parables designed to keep out those that had refused his teaching. It was the ending of the end. And so there's a principle that many have identified as they've studied this text. I'm not the first. I put it into words. The consequence of this is if you refuse God's authority, He gives you over to yours. And He speaks to you no more. Now that's a little bit of a stunning thing to hear in our therapeutically addicted society, which basically respects the thinking and the mind of man and and never allows consequences to land. Well, God does allow consequences to land. Read Romans 1, where He gives over entire generations to their sin and lets them plummet as though He takes His hands off. If, if, if you refuse God's authority, He gives you over to yours and all the consequences of it. And He speaks to you no more in the sense that if you don't want revelation... He's not obligated to bring it to you. This is a principle you see both in the Old and New Testaments. And Isaiah 63, among many different places among the prophets, Israel had rebelled yet further and refused God's revelation through his prophets yet again. And God got to a certain point with them where the scripture says in Isaiah 63:10, they rebelled, they grieved his Holy Spirit, therefore he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. That is a dramatic statement. You refuse God's authority, He will at a certain point give you over to yours. And that revelation, why give it again? And Jesus said, why throw pearls before swine? It's from the words of Jesus. Now we see it actually in Luke 19 and verse 41, where Jesus pronounced it over all of Jerusalem, as, as he came into the city, he knew they were rejoicing for the wrong reasons. They thought he was going to take over the Roman garrison and, and make Israel a victorious nation and overnight. No, he came to die for them, to be their Messiah. He knew where the leaders were going to be. He knew that in eight days they would have betrayed him. He would be tormented and crucified on a hill outside the city he was riding into. He knew all that was coming, and as he stopped and he looked at the city, Luke 19, 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. For peace with who? For peace with God. 
but now they are hidden from your eyes. You may wrestle with that. I wrestle with that. But there seems to be a dimension here in which if you refuse God's authority, he gives you over to yours and all the consequences thereof. And he speaks to you no more. There comes a time. There comes a time. In fact, in John chapter 3, not to belabor this difficult point, but it is needed. People need to come to decisions about Jesus Christ. They don't need to be lovingly and indulgently empowered to keep putting off their decision about whether they're going to be the authority or he's going to be the authority. Because you don't know when your life ends. You just don't. We had a service in here yesterday for a life of a young man that ended suddenly, unexpectedly, and way too early. Now, thankfully, there'd been a decision of faith and some fruit of faith in his life, though it was a life filled with battle and failures. Oh, don't you tell me you've got all the time in the world to finally get around to God. John chapter 3. Jesus said this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. That's the whole question. You love your works. Your works are evil. You love being God over your own life and you will not come to the Lord of life. But if you suddenly change, verse 21 becomes you. But whoever does what is true, in other words, repents of sin and comes to the Savior, comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Conversion is a mighty miracle, but it can happen to you. So there is a consequence and it leads to spiritual freedom or personal destruction. Now, that's the narrative. That's the the analysis of the passage. Let me close by applying this. Now, don't do what a lot of very much taught and experienced Christians do with passages like this in the Gospels that involve the Pharisees. You know where I'm going here. Don't roll your eyes and say, man, those Pharisees. Jeez, these guys were hardened sinners and they're so blind, so religiously proud. Backstory not like me. Oh no. Just like me. Four things. By application, think about your life as it relates to this passage. Number one, I believe their problem with God's authority is ours. In other words, this is in the Bible for a reason. This whole encounter is in there because every human being says, by what authority do you as God have any say in my life? That's what's going on in the streets yesterday. By what authority? We will be ungovernable until the authority says what we want it to say. That's not just radical abortionists. That's the heart of a lost man or woman. That's where we were without Christ. Stephen Cole has done some great work on this. It helped me a lot this week, Bible teacher. 
He said it this way, the problem that those Jewish religious leaders face is the same problem that every person who comes into contact with Jesus faces. His authority confronts my authority. At first, maybe it's just an irritating sermon. Oops. I hope I'm irritating. At first, maybe it's just an irritating sermon that makes you a bit uncomfortable. You don't like it, but you brush it aside and continue on with your agenda for your life. Then perhaps you have another encounter with Jesus. A passage in the Bible steps on your toes. Your level of discomfort goes up a notch. You realize that if he takes over your life, there are going to be some radical changes, and you're not sure that you want to give up control, so you scramble to dodge the implications of who Jesus is. You raise all sorts of intellectual questions so that you don't have to face the fact that he is Lord but he keeps confronting your authority to run your own life. And sooner or later, you come to a crisis point where you have to deal with the question that these Jewish religious leaders ask, by what authority does Jesus say and do these things? The bottom line for them is the same for us today. End of quote. I think he nails it. Whether you're coming and you're grappling with the gospel as someone who doesn't know Christ, that's the question. Or whether you're a follower of Christ, but now you're in some lordship tensions and he's asking for you to change your life under his authority in ways you don't like, that's the question. So their problem with God's authority is ours. That's why this passage is here. Secondly, the question to settle is, who is the final moral authority in your life, in life, in the world, in moral questions and social questions, but also in your questions, in your world. The question to settle is who is the final moral authority in, the li- in life? Have you decided that in your life is my question. That's the question of the passage. Have you decided that in terms of your savior or his lordship? Now, a lot of people have different measures for their life. Some people will say, well, you know, I've, I've done pretty well most of my life without God. I just follow my conscience. Really? Well, how perfect is your conscience? Ever asked that question? How perfect is your conscience? Not. Other people will say, you know, all through my life, I've just basically done what felt right in my heart. Do you realize that tens of thousands of people marched in America yesterday shouting ungovernable precisely because they passionately believe that taking an unborn child's life is right in their heart? You don't understand how how committed the mindset of secular man is, and it feels right. They say, well, I've just followed reason all my life. I was taught to intellectually reason things out, and the mind of man can, can, can work out the solutions. We'll just take a look at the life of man, and, and I laugh at your conclusion. No. The great answer is the authority comes from Creator God and Savior God. Now, a Christian answers that at their conversion, and then they keep answering it all the way through their, their Christian life. Two more, and I close. How do you build this as a Christian? How do you get your moral authority instructed by God? Because you've come to Christ, but you still got your flesh. You're living in a society that's totally opposite and blinded about his authority. How do you grow under understanding the authority of God? 
Well, for the third is this. Coming under the preaching of God's word is essential to a morally directed life. Coming under the preaching of God's word is essential to a morally directed life. It's why this passage is in your Bible today. It's why I'm teaching it today. God's word is the ultimate revealer of God's moral authority. It's not your conscience. It's not your reason. It's not a warm feeling in your heart about what's right. It's what he says. And so you need to be under the teaching of the Bible by somebody who tells you what he says. Not what they think. Not what the culture wants to hear. Not what the latest new ideas about God might be, but what he says. This is biblical preaching Now, notice this whole encounter, by the way, is surrounded by preaching and teaching. The whole thing that set it off in verse 47 was Jesus was what? Teaching daily in the temple, chapter 20, verse 1, and he was teaching the people and preaching the gospel. What set this off? Teaching. From who? From God's word. And the people were hanging on those words. Many, 3,000 of them, some weeks later, would come to faith in Jerusalem in the risen Jesus. So the word bore fruit. But then there were others like the scribes and Pharisees that reacted against the, the moral authority of God. But it all comes down to preaching and teaching. Do you see that was what lit this whole thing off? And so when you're a Christian, you better be under authoritative preaching and teaching because that's the only thing that can keep this lit in your life. I was fortunate to come across in my research this week a, a, a biography, not a biography, but a book about uh, the preaching of John Calvin. Now, I, I don't believe in everything John Calvin taught by any means, but he was a, 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 an expositor in, in the Reformation period, maybe one of the greatest Bible teachers there was in that era. And so there was, there's a lot to be learned for, for how he approached the Bible. He basically let off a revival in Geneva, Switzerland over two decades. It was interesting what... Calvin said about preaching. This book says, Calvin believed that the preacher's primary task was to expound Holy Scripture, which is to say the voice of God himself. In Calvin's opinion, preaching was like a visitation from God through which he reaches out his hands to draw us to himself. He insisted that the preacher, quote, is to invent nothing of his own, but declare only what has been revealed and recorded in Holy Scripture. I believe that. My grandfather who preached for 60 years, and when I came to Christ, I built a relationship with him late in his life. Believe that. He would often tell me, Joe, never forget when you preach that every moment and hour people are under the Word of God is a Holy Spirit moment. That when you preach what happens in the moment and in the hour and in the real, when people are right there under the word, doesn't happen again. The Holy Spirit works through the word, in the moment, in the regenerate hearts of people. Believe that. And it's kept me preaching for decades. Regardless of the visible response of audiences, I know the Spirit is always at work. The preaching moment is a holy thing. And so I better come into it, not with me, but with him. And not with my thoughts, but with his words. That's why I said in the beginning, I'm not so much a sermon giver, I'm just a Bible teacher. And what we've done for the last 45 minutes is look into the Bible. Calvin also said the message of Scripture is sovereign over the congregation and sovereign over the preacher. In other words, you need to be here to hear from him from his word. 
Just a little trivia that I found interesting as a preacher, since I'm so old school. In Geneva, where Calvin preached, the word was preached every day of the week. Did you know that? There was a sermon every day, not just on Sunday. I like that. Calvin preached every single day. He taught a different message every single day, this massive mind. And twice on Sunday, with sermons lasting for more than an hour. I really like that. Uh Uh-oh. Calvin rarely preached topical sermons, but rather taught consecutively through books of the Bible. When he was banished from Geneva for three years because of his Bible preaching, his first Sunday back in the pulpit, he picked up with the next verse following his previous sermon three years before. I just love that. Sort of like I did this morning by following up with Luke chapter 20, verse 1, after two and a half years ago, we left this. People tell me, why do you do expository preaching? He says, I have no idea what to say next Sunday. I just need to find out what he has to say. I thought this was encouraging. Also says sometimes he would preach several sermons on a single verse. (laughs) At other times he'd cover several verses. He preached 123 sermons on Genesis, 200 on Deuteronomy, 159 on Job. Can you imagine that? 189 on Acts. Anyway, that's just a little commercial. How are you going to get your moral direction in life? from your personal study, from your times with God, but don't discount the fact that you need to be under biblical preaching. Here's the fourth, and I close. Accepting the piercing power of preaching is essential to a morally directed life. Preaching needs to be given with authority. And at times with intensity. I read again from this book about Calvin, uh, the author says, many Christians in our day want to go to a church where the sermons make them feel good about themselves. But when the apostle Paul wrote to Timothy about the inspiration of scripture, he said that it is, quote, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. He went on to exhort Timothy in the strongest possible language to preach that word especially in light of the fact that the time would come when people want their ears tickled and would pile up teachers in accordance with their own sinful desires. Paul spelled out to Timothy how he should preach the word, 2 Timothy 4.2, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort are words of authority and intensity, folks. Author goes on preaching that does not reprove, rebuke, and exhort people regarding sin is not biblical preaching. Preaching that avoids confronting sin and that just makes people feel good is not pleasing to God. As Calvin pointed out in his own words when he preached on 2 Timothy 3.16, preaching that picks the verses that meet people's fancy and neglects the verses that confront how they live is not biblical preaching. Calvin argued this. This is not great language for a preacher. The faithful pastor needs to use enough intensity that people realize that this is not a game. So if you're thinking of preaching or you're looking for a preacher, Calvin said a faithful pastor needs to use enough intensity that people realize that this is not a game. If you're going to preach, then preach. Because you're representing God's moral authority over spiritual lives. I just, I just think that's 
fascinating and revealing. Well, life is all about responding to spiritual authority, isn't it? Eternal life certainly is. When God's truth comes into your world and challenges you, will you join the great crowd chanting, Ungovernable! Or will you silently slip to the side of that crowd and with a broken spirit bow your head before God and say, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 